It's always interesting to talk to a photographer who has enjoyed a lengthy career. But it's not just longevity that makes them interesting to me. It's when I see them create consistent quality work in a variety of genres. Barbara Bordnick has done fashion, fine art, nudes, and portraits, each informed by the way she uses line and shape and color. You look at any of her images and you could be misled by their simplicity, but it's what she does with the few elements she includes in the frame that has earned her a reputation as a master photographer. Well, welcome, Barbara, to The Candid Frame. It's, uh, um, it's a real pleasure to sit down and have a chance to talk with you. The pleasure's all mine. I love looking at your work. Uh, I've been a great fan of you for, for many years. And revisiting your website and taking a look at your work, it's really fascinating to see that regardless of the subject matter, whether it's nudes, whether it's flowers, whether uh, it's portraits, there's a, a uniformity to the work. I wanted to start off with that because I think it's kind of rare to see a photographer who, through a diversity of different subject matter, seems to have a, a sort of consistency from regardless of what they're turning their, their lens to. And can you speak about that? What do you think it is about your own work that allows you to sort of maintain that throughout? Well, I thank you, first of all, because I consider that a compliment. And I think it's my background as in design, first of all. It doesn't really matter to me whether I'm shooting a flower or a nude or a portrait or fashion. It all, to me, it's all form and color and a certain kind of landscape that I'm looking for in everything. And one of the things I truly believe is that people call it style, but I call it a point of view. And I think it's the only thing that an artist has that is completely inimicable. It is completely impossible for someone else to have exactly the same point of view because we're all different. I mean, even twins, one's an older sibling, one's a younger sibling. And it, from the moment of birth, it changes their life experience. And I think I just have a point of view about life. I've been, I've, I think I've always sought beauty which isn't very popular these days in the art world, but I always have. And so I look for it however one defines beauty. For me, it's a very sensuous thing. For me, the flowers are like photographing nudes, mm -hmm. and the nudes are like photographing some gorgeous creature I might have photographed in a fashion photograph. And in portraiture, I think I look for the same mystery in a person, but the same kind of communication between me and the person that I have, even with a flower. That point of view, I think it's a great way of, of expressing that. Having a, a strong point of view and allowing that to manifest in your work can be a challenge, especially when you're young and you're starting out, because trusting that is, can, it takes a while. I agree. And so when you, with your early work in fashion, talk about nurturing that and being able to sustain it so that you don't just end up doing what everyone else is doing? How did you come to trust your own voice when it came to your photography? Well, it was a long, it feels, or it certainly felt like a long time in coming, my being able to get started in fashion photography. I was not, I have absolutely no training. I am completely self-trained. 
and self-taught. And my background is that is in fashion design. I knew in school I didn't want to be a fashion designer, but since I was on scholarship and knew that I could keep it if I stayed in that, I just took electives and everything else. So when I got out of school, I had no idea what I wanted to do, and I, but I was married, and I talked my husband into leaving the country. It seemed to be the best solution. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always wanted to travel, and he promised that even though he had traveled and even though we were married and everyone says, oh, once you get married, you're going to, you know, it's not going to happen. But we left and we went to Europe and we, uh, he was a very, very talented industrial designer. I mean, he still is, but he's no longer my husband. So he found work wherever he tried. So we first lived in Copenhagen and then in Paris and then we traveled for nine months. But when we were in Copenhagen and I realized I was a wife in a country that was getting darker. We got there in September, darker. The days were getting shorter. The weather was getting colder. I'd never been away from home before, so I missed my family. I didn't speak the language, and the only thing I had with me were uh, eight photographs I had done in a photography class that I took in my senior year at Pratt. And I thought, well, let me see if I can go see some photographers. To make a very long story short, I got work, which terrified me because I had no idea what I was doing. But they sent me up to, but they, a group of them got together. There were very few of them anyway, um, and sent me up to a Scandinavian photo magazine called Danske Fotomagasinet. And they actually bought my photographs. They were photographs illustrating haiku poetry of all things. And they bought them. And some months later, when we were, we had left Copenhagen and we were traveling and I was in Rome. I got a package of a magazine with my name across two double-page spreads. And, of course, that was all I could read was my name. Everything else was in Danish. And my photographs. So I thought, oh, man, this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> and I ran out to, uh, to my husband who was waiting in the car. We were on our way to Greece, I believe. And he said, what's the matter? And I said, nothing. I'm going to be a photographer. It's so easy. It's like one of those little experiences that keeps you a long way mm -hmm. because then we traveled and then we wound up in Paris where I met all the photographers there, but I didn't speak the language. I was very insecure. I didn't really look for a job as an assistant, not wholeheartedly at any rate. And my husband was working there as well. But one photographer, a Swiss photographer, invited me to watch him shoot the collections. That's when I saw him shoot, do a fashion shot, and I saw a woman make a gesture with her hand that was so beautiful, I said, this is what I want to do. But I came back to New York and for nine months looked for a job. No one hired girls in those days. Mm -hmm. It's still much harder for a woman to get a job as an assistant. So I finally did and then, you know, worked for someone for six months who then decided he wanted to be a photographer, wanted to be a jazz pianist. And I was lost again. So by the time I actually got started, it was a disadvantage that I didn't work for a lot of people because I didn't know what I was doing very much. But on the other hand, you know, someone else's work was not inculcated in me. I wasn't, I hadn't worked for someone who I admired enormously for like two years. Mm -hmm. where you usually go through their work and then into your own. So I really 
by that point, all I was aware of was that nobody was shooting women and fashion the way I felt about it. So in a way, I had a very clear vision. It was a time, it was a, it was a lull in fashion at that time. The Avedon was doing all his studio jumping stuff, and most of the photographers were doing very crisp things. Jimmy Moore was probably the most delicately feminine stuff. And my stuff, I think when I started, I used to get rent all these old clothes, you know, all these beautiful vintage clothing and shoot them. Very Warhol-ish type models. Um, in fact, Warhol would send me some of his people and then use some of my people if you can call them his people and my people. So by the time I started, I think I had a very strong feeling about what my work should look like because my work was not like anybody else's at the time. So what allowed you to finally break through? Because I can imagine that there was a lot of resistance, not not only to the fact that you were a woman, but that the style that you were that you were practicing was unlike what most people were, were used to in the fashion magazines. Well... Um, what allowed me to break through? Well, what, uh, how I got my job as an assistant was I, by accident, bumped into someone in the street that I went to school with who was trying to model. She was never going to be successful at modeling. She was trying to model, and she, in fact, she was in my photographs that I did in school, and she was with this young photographer. And uh, so I met him, and then I started following his work in Mademoiselle and I think bizarre or uh, in some of them or New York Times and I really liked his work and so when I couldn't get a job anywhere else I decided to call him and ask him if he needed an assistant and he said I've been in the dark room for four days and four nights I need an assistant so badly he said but I only do editorial work and I can't afford anybody and so I said well you know can I come and talk to you which I did and I was at my wit's end. I had given myself a week to get a job or I was going to become a secretary or something. I was certainly a good typist. And I went to see him and I agreed to work for him for, you know, no pay, just sort of as an intern. And that's what I did. And so everything I learned in photography, I learned from him. Hmm. And that was very limited because I... Uh, you know, he was just starting out too, and he did a very limited kind of work. He wasn't—I wasn't working in a studio that was a big studio where all kinds of work came in. But it was enough to get me started. It was enough to make me comfortable around models and and directing and and. Um, but the very first job I got, for example, I didn't even know what a stylist was. I did all my own styling. It was the art director who finally, after giving me a few jobs, said, you know go hire a stylist. I had no idea how to find one. Mm. I mean, I really, really knew no one in the business and just started from real zero. And the interesting thing was I knew so little that once I started working, um, well, what happened was when I came back to New York, I called Harper's Bazaar and told them that the French editor sent me. When I lived in Paris, you do things in foreign countries you would never do at home. Mm-hmm. I had the nerve to call up the French editor of Bazaar and ask her if I could come and see her. And as luck would have it, she took me under her wing, and she introduced me to all the photographers in Paris, which is how I met the Swiss photographer who invited me to watch the collection, to watch him shoot the collection. 
So when I came back, I told them at Bazaar that Marion Capron had recommended they see me. And in those days, it cost like $35, $40 to call Paris. So nobody was going to check up on it. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> so I, they said, oh, sure, come by. So I went to see them, and it was the same routine for about four visits. Oh, darling, fabulous, fabulous. You know, do some more and come back and show us. And so I would go out, I'd do some more, I'd come back. And, and this went on, and then finally I just said, you know, and my husband was getting annoyed that I wasn't living up to my deal of being a professional and working also. And so I was fortunate I was fortunate in a number of ways. I was fortunate to be married to somebody who was incredibly supportive in every way he could be. The only thing lacking us was financial support. But we lived in a house, in a, a two-story house, and I asked if he thought we could set up downstairs as a studio so I could start testing and putting together a portfolio. And that's what I did. And I put together a portfolio. That's what I was showing bizarre. I managed to find a client without editorial work, which for fashion was phenomenal, phenomenal. Mm -hmm. One day while we were doing a shooting, Harper's Bazaar called me. And the rest, as they say, is history. They called me and all the guys, because they were all guys, used to say to me, oh, don't do the pictures in the back because once you get stuck in that, you'll never get out. Because Bazaar used to do something called Shopping Bazaar. And it was kind of, and it was the magazine's version of a mail order. They would have these items that were that you could order by mail. Right. And so they called and asked if I would like to do shopping bazaar, and I said yes. My favorite model, who was one of the greatest models ever, Donna Mitchell. I was shooting with her when they called, and I said, Donna, would you do it with me? She says, Of course, Barbara. And so I did all these photographs and. They came into the office. I was told this. They came into the office and the art directors were out to lunch. And so the assistant art director got the photographs and they were laying on the desk. And she went out to lunch. And they came back and they were trying to figure out whose pages they were. Ah. And finally, the the assistant came back and said, oh, that's Barbara Bordnick, that's Shopping Bazaar. And they immediately called and gave me pages. Wow. And that's, that's how amazing. it happened. It's amazing, isn't it? And I really think that it was the assistant who got, who wanted me to do Shopping Bazaar. I think she was leaving. She was a, she was a young assistant. I mean, she had a, an art background. She wasn't a photographer. And she was more my age. And I think she wanted to give me a break. So she got me in there. And she knew that the art directors liked my work, but they were just kind of taking their time. Mm -hmm. And I think she pulled me in there. And when they saw what I did, they gave me pages. You know, what's fascinating about your, your career is that moments seem to happen that people would ascribe to just luck or chance, but you're, you're able to take advantage of them. This is one example. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah, because you have that moment where you, where you did your first commercial where someone looked at your still work and said, hey, you should do a, a, a commercial, and you just jump into it, or or how you got into taking pictures of flowers. You had set up a completely different shoot. It didn't work out, and you said, well, let me, let me do this. And all of these things just end up going to places that you could never anticipate happening. And never. It's, and it's right. wonderful to see how you just go with it, and it just blossoms. 
Well, I think that it's because I never had any formal training so that everything has been an adventure to me. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, when I joined ASMP and I met the photographers who, you know, I used to shoot some catalogs, for example. Well, J.C. Penney was a, a client of mine. In fact, that's who I did my commercials for. As a matter of fact, right now they're doing commercials for J.C. Penney that are really interesting with Ellen DeGeneres. Yeah, those it's are really fun. It's the first fun. time they've done anything interesting since I shot commercials for them in 1977, I believe it was. Well, there was a lot of work that I turned down because I couldn't do it. I had no idea how to do it. They would ask me to do, and, and I really was not interested, like photographing a shoe on a model under a cow. They were saying something about leather and cowhide mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I mean, I couldn't even imagine <laughs> So there was there was work that I turned down. I would do some catalogs for J.C. Penney, and I would do the fashion, and a still life photographer would do the still life, the accessories or the jewelry or whatever. When I joined ASMP and I walked into this big meeting and I met some photographers, I, I met like Michael O'Neill and a, a couple of other still life photographers. I'd say, oh, so you're the one, you know, we were happy to meet each other. We knew of each other as being the other part of this project. Mm -hmm. And then I got really friends with some incredible photographers. That's where I met photographers, in fact, the first time I met photographers. And they said to me, don't ever turn down work. When they found out I turned down work, they said, don't ever turn down work. You know, call me. I'll help you do it. I'll tell you how to do it. That's really when I got, I realized that I didn't have to know everything. And I didn't, no, let me put it another way. That's when I realized I didn't have to feel bad about not knowing everything. Oh, that's a great distinction. You know, I, I, my description, I, I haven't, I, I describe experience and inexperience in the following way. I describe inexperience as being terrified, as, as knowing nothing and being terrified of everything that you don't know. And I believe I describe experience uh, as knowing that you don't know anything, but no longer being terrified. And I think that's the only difference. Yeah, yeah, because it allows you to step back and make choices, including being able to ask for help. Yes, I just was talking to a student about this yesterday. You have and the en- enormous benefit of experience. For example, every time I do a portrait, it's a scary thing. Because I happen to think that portraiture is the most difficult of all photography. Because to me, it re- requires a presumption, an enormous presumption, whereby you're going to meet this person and in this microscopic amount of time, you're going to be able to say something about this person and get a photograph or have a, have a communication with this person that will create a photograph which will make people, when they look at it, feel like they were there. Because mm. that, to me, is the definition of a portrait. It's, photo, it's a photograph of someone that, wherein the communication between the photographer and the subject was so immediate and so honest that anybody looking at the portrait feels like they were there. Yeah. And the great things about your your portrait, so much of today's portraiture is so infused with the post processing. Oh, you know? I know. And and what I love about your photographs is that they are so much about gesture 
there's this one portrait that you have on your on your website. It's it's a black and white image of a, of a character actor. I can't remember his name. He's highly recognizable, though. Brian um, Cox. Brian Cox. I love him as a, as a performer, but I love that portrait of him. And he's not doing anything extraordinary, but within the context of that frame, you use his body and his shoulder and that negative space of white to lead to that great face. And it's such a simple but such a fantastic portrait. And I love the choices that you make in all your images because sometimes you allow the face to say everything. And then in other images, you allow the subject's shoulder or their hands to add that little, that little something special to help complete the image. And I think you really have to be confident about what you're doing to trust the frame and the person to be able to say everything in a portrait and not be so dependent on fancy lighting and post-processing to, to express that. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for all the compliments. I love that photograph of Brian. Of course, he is an amazing, amazing subject. His face has the topography that is a dream for a mm, photographer, yes. a dream. But the particular photograph that you're talking about is a funny story. That photograph is taken on the roof of the theater he was performing at, a roof where he assured me we had permission to shoot just before we were thrown off because we didn't <laughs> have permission to shoot. <laughs> but I have, I have many photographs of Brian. I have one of just his face that is absolutely haunting. I love the movement of this photograph, this photograph that nothing is happening in, but mm -hmm. has such a movement, you know? Yeah. And I I love it. It's my design background. I mean, I, I understand space. And to me, the most important thing in photographing a person, the two most important things are their hands and their eyes. I think that tells you everything about them. And when I'm about to photograph somebody, when someone comes into the studio, I always watch what they do with their hands, uh, how they use their hands, because I'm deciding whether they're going to be in the photograph or out of the photograph. But like cutting off hands, when my, I mean, it makes me crazy when people crop hands in a funny place. Mm -hmm. um, that I think that also comes from my fashion background as well. It's bizarre you never cut hands or or made it look like fingers were missing because it, they had a history of one of the great fashion editors who had a bad hand and you never, ever, ever had a photograph that made a hand look strange or disfigured or anything like that. That was kind of passed down, the unspoken thing. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, I think that when I teach about anything, about flowers or portraiture, I, I don't care what it is, or landscapes, my favorite photograph is a landscape I did in Africa, the street shot I did in Africa. Unfortunately, you can't see it because I don't have it anywhere, mm. and I only sell it to people I like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very crazy. I mean, you know, business person is not, is not the, the, the title that comes first. But at any rate, I always say that the frame, that when you look through the camera, you have to realize that the frame is your canvas. And everything on that canvas has to be your choice. Going back to the, the hands, I think a lot of people struggle when they're making a portrait in terms of what to do with the hands. And looking at your images, none of these images look like 
the hands were placed in a, in a way that feel forced. It seems like it came naturally, but I'm sure that it's it's sort of a, a, a little dance that you have to do with your, your subjects. Could you talk about how you, especially when you talk about when, when you see that a subject has wonderful hands and they're doing something interesting with it, how you incorporate it into the photograph so that it does come off as natural rather than forced? Yes. I'll tell you best I can because I don't think that anybody really knows how their photograph happened except perhaps still life photographers. And even then, I mean, you have an idea, you're dealing with live subjects, and as far as I'm concerned, it's a point of departure, or perhaps, if you're lucky, a point of arrival. Mm -hmm. But if we take the photograph of Alberta Hunter, which is the woman with her hands on her face. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Alberta, who... I met when I was doing my Great Women in Jazz calendar for Polaroid, which was all 8x10 Polaroid. I met her. She was she had just been rediscovered by Bobby Short. And a friend of mine called and said, you want to know the best thing that's happening in jazz this year? And of course, I said yes. And he said, well, good, because she's waiting by the phone for you to call her. <laughs> um, so Alberta, I invited Alberta over because she wasn't performing. She had just been forced to retire as a nurse. She was forced to retire at 75. She was They were supposed to retire her at 70 or something, mm-hmm. but they let her, and she was really 82. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's an amazing story. So there was no place I could see her perform because she, was, she wasn't working as a singer at the time. And she had been a singer during the war and traveled with the troops and was with Brick Top and Dean Baker and all, all of those people. At any rate, I asked if she could come by the studio so I could meet her because there was no other way I was going to see her. She came to the studio and she was dressed in what we used to call an Eisenhower sweater, one of those man's sweaters that's mm-hmm. like a V-neck and buttons down the front. Yeah. And a blue jean skirt and brown what we might say, brown old lady shoes. And she looked like this, just this kind of charming little old lady, which I don't know why I say that. She's a charming little elderly lady. And in this very ordinary outfit, she put out her hands to shake her hands with me, and she had this bright red nail polish on her nails. And her hands were amazing. And she sat, and my assistant and I sat on the floor at her feet, and I had her sitting in this chair. I have a photograph of her in that chair. And she proceeded to tell us the story of her life for four hours, and I didn't have it recorded. That's one of the saddest moments. Uh. As she was speaking, the way she used her hands was amazing. And every time she'd laugh, she would do that. She would, like, hold her face. And I knew there was no question in my mind how I was going to photograph her. How I got, how I was going to get her to do that was another story. So I kept looking at her and seeing what made her do that and just remembered. And when she came to the studio, I just tried to charm her back into that place. Mm. And so that it would be real because we shot a film of the shooting. We reenacted the shooting because Polaroid did a film on the calendar and it's a wonderful film. And so I had to get her to do that for the film. And it's interesting to see. And of course, I I shot it because we were reenacting a shooting and they had to see the Polaroid come out and and et cetera. And it's so different for me to look at the Polaroid, the eight by 10 of 
the film shoot compared to the compared to this photograph that actually ran in the calendar because one she was asked to do it and another she just did it uh-huh. so you know and as far as how i get other people i i have a uh somewhat of a dance background i've always loved dance and i think a lot of my flowers dance <laughs> And that's why I always knew when a model could move. Mm-hmm. And I think that my understanding of the body and where the body moves from, for example, I know that the head, that somebody's face and head, if I just was going to do a headshot, I know that headshot is a measure of what the body is doing. I understand that. And I don't think a lot of photographers do. So they say, raise your chin, tilt your head turn this way, turn right. that way. Mm-hmm. And I don't do that. I know exactly where from the spine they have to move from. So I might say, sit up a little, sit up a little and, and kind of lean this way. And I know what will happen to their head. And I know what will make them comfortable. And so rarely are they in a position where they feel awkward. I always look for what I think is their private world. Mm. I guess I define my responsibility as a portraitist is to create, and I learned this from actors a long time ago. I learned this from working with actors is to create a space in which they can, in which someone can feel completely comfortable to be whomever they want to be, which is why I allow no one on the set except my assistant. No, boyfriends, girlfriends, nobody comes to the studio with people. They can come, but they sit in the front of the studio. No one is on set because I want them to be who they want to be, not who they think they have to be. And if people that know them are around, we all have a perception of how people see us. And so if we do something contrary to that, we're not comfortable. And as someone's watching us, we're Mm -hmm. not comfortable. But if suddenly we can be whoever we want to be, it's amazing what happens. Wow. That's fantastic. Well, I, I want to get into the flowers because I have to tell you, when I first saw your book, I was working at Outdoor Photographer at the time when your, your first book came out. Uh-huh. And I remember picking it up and looking at it and just being amazed because I have, I have seen so many pictures of flowers in my lifetime. And then I looked at those photographs and I was like, oh, my God. I mean, it was just, it was just remarkable. And, and the fact that you use landscape to describe what you're doing with those, with such a frequently photographed subject is so apt. Like you said before, you're looking at shape, line, form. And I, I would love for you to sort of tell the story of how you ended up getting into photographing them because I think it's a funny story but it is it's a funny story but talk talk about why this subject matter has become such a a passion for you yeah I'm one of the canon explorers of light which is a group of I suppose somewhat elite photographers and they had just come out with their first SLR digital camera which was the D30 a big three megapixel camera and they were and and they wanted a number of us to shoot with it to try it out and i don't know if it was a prototype but it was it was the only camera available i think perhaps they had two and it was being passed from photographer to photographer for a certain number of hours each and so it came to me 
I had the assistant who worked with it with the photographer before me, so so he knew what we were doing. I planned on doing a photograph of a dancer, uh, of a dancer's hands in the movement of an Alvin Ailey dance. That these hand, this hand movement always made me always fascinated me. I always wanted to photograph it, and so I thought I had that prepared for that by some fortune, I suppose. I forgot to book her. I forgot to tell to book the dancer. I had asked someone else to book her because I was going to do a, a, a man and a woman as well that day. And I told him he thought I did it. I thought he did. So, so of course she didn't come. She was a very, you know, she was a very well known dancer and had other things to do. If I didn't let her know, and so here I was, and I had to do something. And I lived near the Union Square Market and usually have flowers. And I had a flower sitting on the table and I said, God, we've got to do something. So let's just shoot this damn thing. And so I picked it up and it was a lily. We moved the lights and we changed the lights around. I set up a table and I put this flower there and I took a shot of it and said to my assistant, look how great it looks on the little, on the little LED. Everything always looks so good on this. And so I took another shot and looked at it, and it looked just as good. And I said, let's put this into the computer. I can't believe this is as good as this. Mm-hmm. And we put it into the computer, and I looked at it, and I was blown away. I just said, oh, my God, I have never, ever been here. And I didn't know anyone else that had either. And that was it. And I started shooting, and that I mean, I was just haunted by the world that opened up to me and it was a world of it was it was this landscape of unbelievable form and color and texture it was just amazing and the eroticism and sensuality of it was remarkable to me and it was very very similar to photographing the nude, although I never really went for eroticism in the nude, I just think that sensuality is incredibly erotic. You know, I, I always say I photograph the nude the way I would like to be touched. Oh, and, that's lovely. And since when you photograph a nude, you can't touch them, you have to do it with light. And so that's how I like them. The thing about your flower portraits, there's a couple of images that you have on the site where you see the the stem coming out, extending. Uh-huh. And it's like the gesture of an arm and a hand. And I, and I love that about your images. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, those were, those opened my, that was the opening of my first exhibition. Mm, um, you okay. walked in and that was, one was on the left side of the entranceway and one on the, on the right side of the entranceway. Yeah, um, they, it, but you know, the, the, that little flower, that little bud that sticks out reminds me of a little girl with bangs. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I talk to my flowers when I photograph them and I often apologize them for torturing them. You know, it's interesting because when I first started, when I did the first book, because it was the first book of digitally captured images, that were creative images that were, you know, not commercial images that were artwork. If you, if that work word doesn't make you crazy, yeah. um, because of that, the people were, books were being published from 
digital images, but they were scanned. They were scanned from films. Right. This was the first book of digitally captured images that was not a how-to book, that was more a fine art book. And so every magazine covered it. The first one to cover it was the New York Times. I mean, every, every photo magazine covered it. Newspapers covered it. I mean, it was, it sold out because it was such a novelty as well as, you know, as well as if you liked the photograph. Because of that, I had, I, I also had an exhibition. And the uh, interesting thing about the exhibition was it was in, it was in May, the beginning of May. And when we hung it, it was snowing outside. And so we went into this loft and there was, with these floor-to-ceiling windows, and snow was falling outside, and we hung these photographs. And it, when these photographs are on the wall, it completely trans—I I mean, it just completely changes a place. And it was spring inside, with the snow outside. Mm. It was the most over—it was the most beautiful experience. And of course, by the time we hung the show, it was too dark for me to take any photographs. So. I don't have any photographs of that particular scene. But the movement in the flowers and things that look like like arms, and I, I started to say before that I talked to my flowers and apologized to them, but when I first started doing the book and people were interviewing, when I, first, when I did the first book and people inter- were interviewing me, more than a few times people would say, but you photographed people your whole life. How do you feel about photographing inanimate objects? And I thought that was the most curious thing anybody could say about a flower. Mm. Because to me, the flowers had such personalities. You know, because the first book was done with a three megapixel camera, and often people want to buy the, because I sell prints in limited editions, and people would like them larger. I'll only take those to 20 by 30. And even that, they pixelate some, but you don't, you know, it doesn't, you don't mind it, but I have tried to reshoot the flowers that are that I had. I got the most demand for larger ones of. Mm-hmm. I tried to reshoot those flowers as the cameras got better and the files got bigger. And I have never been able to reshoot a flower. It's more difficult than reshooting a person. I have never seen a flower again. Wow. They are so individual. They are so specific. Each one, you can have a bunch of golden yellow tulips or a bunch of pale peach tulips, and it looks like you have a bunch of pale peach tulips, but you don't. You have a group of individual peach tulips. Yeah, and I think that really speaks to why your images are so distinct. I think a lot of people take a picture of of a flower, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're just documenting the flower. They're not really seeing it, and they're not really taking it in as a distinct, unique character in front of their lens. No, and the sad part is they're not experiencing it, mm. which is the difference, I think. I mean, granted, there are people who love flowers and love to smell them and love to look at them and, and stuff. And, and I have had people at my exhibitions walking around looking at my photographs and they don't know I'm the photographer. And I have heard them say, I like when you see the whole flower. Hmm. So, you know, what can you do? <laughs> you teach workshops where you're teaching people how to do it. So what do you think is, is the bigger challenge? Because I'm sure that a lot of them come there thinking, okay, they're going to learn techniques that allow them to make photographs like 
the kind that, that inspire them to to visit you. But I think that probably there's a bigger challenge there. What do you think that is when when people come and they try to learn how to shoot along these lines? Well, when they come here and we do the workshop, I set up the lighting. I set up two lighting situations, which are lighting situations that I shoot in. So they see how I light. If they want to buy strobes and go back and set up like me, then they're going to be shooting flowers like I shoot flowers. I have shot enough flowers where I don't mind if people shoot flowers like I shoot flowers because they won't shoot flowers the way I shoot flowers. They'll shoot flowers the way I shoot flowers, but they won't experience a flower the same way I experience a flower because they're not me and their flower isn't my flower. Mm -hmm. What is really exciting for people who take the workshop is that they get to photograph a flower in this environment, in my lighting setup, and they get to try and look at it and find some of what I find in a flower. And then um, I make a gorgeous print for them. And so they, so they go home with a mini board mix. <laughs> uh. And they do. I mean, it looks, it, it often looks, I mean, there have been a couple of people that have shot, that have made photographs here that I wish I made. And that's fine with me. But whether or not, because it starts out where we go to the flower market and choose flowers. One of the interviews, uh, somebody said, so, okay, so you have a flower. So how do you go about shooting flowers? And I said, no, we have to stop right there because it begins when I go to get the flower. It's in choosing the flower that it begins because something has to speak to me. It's just like choosing a model. Mm. Something has to speak to me. I have to have a reason why I want to spend time with this flower, which is why I never was interested in being in commercially shooting flowers, you know, for ads or something like that. Right. Because I'm not interested in shooting flowers. I'm interested in, in shooting my experience of flowers. And unless that's what somebody wants, it's not going to work. Uh-huh. And if I feel like my experience of a flower is very much like everyone else's, I'm not interested in shooting it. And that's a rose often. Hmm. Gertrude Stein knew what she was saying when she said, a rose is a rose is a rose. I mean, I've seen beautiful photographs of roses, but I have, I've, I was about to say I haven't had anything to say about a rose, but there's one, there's one flower photograph I have that is very much mine. But I find roses difficult. For whatever reason, I find roses difficult. I describe it as when I used to book models, I never liked working with a model that was what you see is what you get. Yeah. I loved working with models that the client would be here and they, the model would come in and the client would look at me and say, you're going to put my clothes on that. And I would say, just sit down, have a cup of coffee, don't worry. And the model would come out of the dressing room and it would be magic. It would be this transformation. And I feel the same way I think about flowers. It's like if I'm looking at something and I think, well, this is what I'm going to get. This is what it looks like. This is what I'm going to get. I'm not interested. If I look at something and I think we can go somewhere together and do something interesting, that's that's when I'll choose that. On my website, the very first photograph on the top left Mm -hmm. is a sunflower. I had no desire to shoot a sunflower. I mean, a sunflower is so what you see is what you get. As far as I'm concerned, to my to my way of thinking, um, there are other people who would completely disagree with me. But I saw this flower and I knew I was home. Uh-huh. But I saw I looked at it and I saw this photograph 
that was in the marketplace. I found, I picked it up and I saw that photograph and I said, okay, I have a sunflower. It really starts there. I mean, I love doing portraits of tulips. I've gotten bunches of tulips and, and I don't know what I'm going to find till I take them apart. There's something about tulips that, I don't know, they just touch my heart as little creatures. Oh, you, you and my wife are in agreement because that's her, that's her favorite, favorite flower. But well, my last question that I always ask my guests is I ask them to recommend or suggest another photographer. And it can be someone that you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, that's a good one. Well, my favorite photographer. I, I, I'm, I'm torn between a photographer I found, a young photographer I found, and a photographer whose work I find amazing and brilliant. Which one do you want? Um. Uh... I'd like to know who your inspiration is. My biggest inspiration, I think, with the photo secessionists, interestingly enough, uh, the photo secessionists and the impressionist painters. And my work is nothing like them. But that's that was my biggest influence when I first started. The work that that's not at all... I mean, she completely inspires me by what she does, but she doesn't influence me. We're absolute contemporaries with Sarah, is Sarah Moon. Hmm. The first photographer I saw, I was a fashion design student, and I and a friend of mine were looking through Bazaar, and we were, and we, you know, because it was required reading, Bazaar, Women's Wear Daily, all those magazines were required reading, and we were looking through, looking at the collections, and and we were saying, oh my God, that's so beautiful, and that's, oh, that's beautiful, and isn't that gorgeous, and oh, how fabulous, and at a certain point, I realized she was talking about the clothes, and I wasn't any longer. I was talking about the photograph, and the photographer was Richard Avedon. Hmm. I remember that day like it was yesterday, but the photographer whose work probably had the biggest influence on me was Bob Richardson. Well, that's a, those are some awesome ideas and some suggestions, and I, I, I can't thank you enough for appearing on, on the show. It's, I could talk to you forever, actually. Oh, but, pleasure. But where can people it was find? Fun. <laughs> oh, good, good. But where can people find out more about your your work and all the things that you're doing? Well, um, they can go to my website. Um, unfortunately, my workshop is not on my website, but they can reach me through my guest book on my works works on my website, and I am happy to put them on my mailing list and send them my workshop announcements. Um, at the moment. They can find a lot of articles about me on, on, through Google, if they Google me. Um, and they can always go to my website, which is www.barbaraboardnick.com. Well, thank you, Barbara, so much. Thank you very, very much. Oh, and I forgot. I have to say they can also buy my book, <laughs> um, which is Searchings, Secret Landscapes of Flowers. And volume two, I believe, is still available, and volume three is available. Uh, I would love it if people would look at it and let me know what they think. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. 
The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod, and this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>